for Puerto Rico, the destruction caused by Hurricane Maria was just the beginning. Damn it, this is not a good news story. This is a people are dying story. This is a life or death story. I think the American public, for the first time ever, is seeing Puerto Rico for what it is. It had a lot of trees, a lot of palms. As you can see now, it's almost naked. We can make jokes about it because you're not suffering the way we are suffering, man. I'm not that sure if what we are seeing in many people in Puerto Rico is resilience or resignation. A resilience has political potential. Resignation has no political potential. I want to retain hope that this is going to impact those young people and that they are going to live differently and create something different for us here. It's all coming up after this. WNYC in New York. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess. Alana is a producer here, and she just got back from a month-long reporting trip to Puerto Rico for WNYC. That story, you may not quite realize, given the mainland's scandal-clogged news cycles, is ongoing and onerous. It's a story some say of resilience, others of resignation. But all can point to frustration, because the people who really could help relieve what is a humanitarian disaster are across a stretch of water, mostly focused on their Twitter feeds and vote counts. But you know all that, which is why this hour we'll focus on Puerto Rico, where tragedy and privation is relieved not by clean tap water, but jokes and music. Alana recorded this song in Las Marias, a small town in the West. Puerto Rico se levanta means Puerto Rico rises up, or gets up. It's all over the island since Hurricane Maria made landfall on September 20th. The phrase is a kind of cheerleading that's been made into recovery branding, emblazoned on t-shirts and billboards and ads for everything, even bread. Puerto Rico isn't back up on its feet, not even close. Take, for instance, the detail about the recovery that's been covered the most. Since the Category 4 hurricane knocked out the entire electric grid, we've been hearing for months about the number of people without power and the progress, or lack of it, in restoring service. It's been exactly five weeks since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, and as of this morning, uh, reported 75% of households, roughly 3 million people, remain without power. And right now, a third of Puerto Rico remains without power. Two months after Hurricane Maria, half of Puerto Rico is still without power. More than Wrong. Nearly three months later, nobody knows how many people still don't have electricity. The government of Puerto Rico was publicizing the amount of electricity generated, now just over 60% of pre-storm output. But if power lines remain down, that number is meaningless, and it fluctuates. Blackouts bring everything to a standstill. Thousands of businesses haven't been able to reopen, and others are relying on pouring gasoline into generators. The government keeps insisting that everything is back to normal, that the emergency has already passed, and I couldn't disagree more. Sandra Rodriguez-Cotto holds a nightly call-in show on WAPA Radio, the only station to stay on before, during, and after the hurricane. Cotto, like many others, had been listening to the radio the day after the storm and heard all the strained voices on the air, exhausted after long hours of nonstop reporting. She drove over to offer to help write newscasts and ended up with the evening on-air time slot, which she still has. It's so hard to describe when people call crying. I have dealt at least four times with four different people that have called saying that they wanted to kill themselves because of the economy and whatever is happening. And they have lost their houses and their relatives are sick. And it's really overwhelming. There are some 3.4 million people in Puerto Rico, or at least there were before Hurricane Maria. Hundreds of thousands have since left, including many doctors and other highly paid professionals. 
that's further crippled the healthcare system and depleted the tax base. So never mind the electricity or the water, which still isn't safe to drink from the tap, by the way. Cotto says there's a more existential threat to this U.S. territory that was already suffering through a decade-long recession. You have families being broken, families losing their income, losing their well-being, losing their houses, the value of their properties, also the ones that had properties. So, I mean, Puerto Rico is under an economic spiral, and I don't see any stop in the near future unless... There's an economic influx that comes. Maybe FEMA recovery funding could be that influx, a federal stimulus package in the form of rebuilding. But I'm afraid it might not necessarily happen, or it might not happen as fast as we're expecting. Some economists are saying that it it will take about 20 years to go back to where we were. In the meantime, Governor Ricardo Rosselló has been slammed for promising too optimistically, as it turns out, to restore electricity to 95% of customers by now. Many, including the U.S. Congress, have dug into how his government is awarding contracts for rebuilding. Whitefish Energy, a small firm with just two full-time employees, received a no-bid $300 million contract to get the electricity back on. Nestled down this long driveway in Whitefish, Montana, is a one-story wooden house, which is the home of Whitefish Energy. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's beautiful out here, but certainly doesn't look like a headquarters for an energy company. Puerto Rico's electric power agency, known as PREPA, has resigned. Ricardo Ramos had faced widespread outrage for signing a $300 million contract with the tiny Montana-based company Whitefish. And yet, says Cotto, it can be hard to tell who is really in charge of Puerto Rico right now and always. If you ask me, it's not the governor. The governor is a puppet. The real power lies in Washington. That might be why the governor of an island where the dominant language is Spanish often starts his press conferences in English. But more on that later. Let's get back to that radio station. Alana? I visited Guapa Radio on what I'm told was a typical Monday. Boxes of diapers and tampons and other supplies were stacked in the lobby, awaiting pickup by a group of nuns. As Goto was showing me around, an elderly woman came in to ask for help. She wanted to see Dr. Alfonso Madrid, an on-air psychiatrist and Koto's co-host. He hadn't arrived. She said she'd wait. It was important. I love you, she told Koto. I passed the hurricane alone with you. Now I'm going through something really sad. In the days after the hurricane, hundreds of people waited in lines down the block with handwritten notes for WAPA hosts to read on the air. They were looking for family, desperate to get any word out when communications were down and roads were impassable. And now, months later, they keep coming. They come. I think that now is even worse than in the few days after the hurricane, because the first few days we were dealing with the situation Now, people are beginning to realize what they have lost. They're beginning to realize how their lives have changed, and now they're in a state of shock. I asked her about the slogan, Puerto Rico se levanta, Puerto Rico rises up. I hate that phrase. And I think now is the worst part in the next couple of weeks. And I think in January, it's going to be even worse. You know why? Because a lot of banks, they gave out moratory periods for people to stop paying their mortgages and their cars. And now they're going to have to start paying them on January, and they're going to find out that they don't have any jobs. You're going to see a lot of bankruptcy and people even going away, leaving everything. Plus, there's Christmas. You can't overstate how cherished and long the holiday season is in Puerto Rico. It starts at Thanksgiving and stretches to late January. But this year, the cheer isn't for everyone. Koto said a friend of hers is struggling without electricity or water. And the mayor of her town just passed by with some trullas singing Christmas songs in trucks with lights. You know what people did? They started throwing rocks at them because they're so upset. Koto spoke privately to the listener who was waiting. We won't use her name because she's a victim of domestic violence and fears for her safety. FEMA had told her her home wasn't habitable, but the shelter she went to was at capacity and they turned her away, a common problem. 
First, she spoke with Dr. Madrid. Then Cotto put a call out on the air. Please contact the radio station, she asked the governor's staff and the staff of the mayor of San Juan. This is the moment for you to move. Tell us where we can refer her to get help, because she has nowhere to go. Then the woman inched up to the mic, too. The elderly in the area of San Juan have been abandoned. We don't know where to go, who to ask for help, where to get medication, nothing. Nothing at all. Sometimes at the beginning I would cry, and I, I, I couldn't keep talking on the air. I had to leave. Koto only recently got power back, and this is all hitting very close to home. Specifically when there were issues with the elderly and with kids with disabilities, because I'm a mom and my daughter has disabilities. So I know how tough it is, because I handle that every single day of my life. My daughter has cerebral palsy, and she's uh, epileptic and partially blind and partially deaf, so I know how it is. If you have a kid like that, and you don't have a house, and you don't have food, and you're sick. I mean, it's really, really bad. So I get upset when they don't get their aid, and I will demand that on the air. Really Her house was broken into a few weeks ago. Papers were destroyed, but since nothing was stolen, she thinks it was an effort to intimidate her. It's not unusual these days for radio stations to engage in this kind of direct appeal to government officials. Driving around Puerto Rico, you hear call after call on the radio from the elderly, a demographic left behind by the mass exodus, dialing in from all over to say where they live and that they don't have electricity. They register their denuncias, complaints. Then the host says they know workers from the power authority often listen to their show and that they should attend to that area. On the air, Coto's main appeal was to the staff of the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulín. Yulín's criticism of the federal response to Hurricane Maria has earned her a reputation as an adversary to President Trump, who continues to insist that the recovery has gone well. Damn it, this is not a good news story. This is a people are dying story. This is a life or death story. She had been mentioned as a possible Time Person of the Year, and just a few days earlier, Yulene had been in New York doing interviews, including with Stephen Colbert. And I hope you never forget us, because we have a long road ahead of us. Can you say damn it on TV? Sure. (laughs) So, damn it, we're going to make it. To be sure, Yulene has enthusiastic fans on the island, but she also has fierce detractors. Piles of debris from Maria still line many San Juan streets, and some residents hold her personally responsible and want her to stop helping other towns and doing interviews until attending to every corner of the capital. Cotto, who is also a media analyst, says the sparring between Yulene and Trump has been the focus for the mainland press. I think they're using her as an example of Trump resistance. And I think that's detrimental to the people of Puerto Rico because that's not the real issue here. It's about the fact that the United States is not giving the aid and the assistance that they should be doing and not even paying the attention to the Puerto Rican people as they should do it because we're U.S. citizens. They should pay more attention to us. They had these beautiful soft towels, very good towels. And I came in, and there was a crowd of a lot of people. And they were screaming, and they were loving everything. And we were, I was having fun. They were having fun. They said, throw them to me, throw them to me, Mr. President. And so I'm doing... Trump's some paper towel-throwing display in a wealthy San Juan suburb in early October did, in fact, change the calculus for the U.S. media. The MIT Media Lab found that pre- and post-storm, Hurricane Maria received a third as many mentions as Hurricanes Harvey and Irma in Texas and Florida. The website Media Matters found that on the Sunday after Maria hit, the five network talk shows collectively spent less than one minute covering Puerto Rico. The New York Times didn't put the story on the front page at all that day. But, the MIT study found, coverage spiked with the president's visit, and since then it has waned. What remains is mostly political coverage. The most frequently used words to discuss Maria are Congress, Senate, Democrats, Republicans, debt, and tax. By contrast, coverage of flooding in Houston after Harvey concentrated on words like victim and family. 
One big story getting attention on the mainland is the controversy over the hurricane's death count. In early October, Trump congratulated the governor for having only 16 dead from hurricane-related causes. As of this writing, the governor's number is 64. 64. But as the New York Times reported this week, according to data from the Demographic Registry of Puerto Rico, 1,052 more people than usual died on the island in the 42 days after the hurricane. This adds to the work of the Center for Investigative Journalism, which has been on this story since September. Omaya Sosa Pascual is a co-founder and reporter. Omaya, welcome to On the Media. Thank you so much for having me again, Bob. We spoke in early October about your work going to morgues and funeral homes trying to figure out an accurate death count. The government insists still that the figure is in the double digits. And President Trump, of course, used that accounting to suggest that things are under control, believe him. CNN has tried to do the math. BuzzFeed has counted 900 cremations in the immediate aftermath of Maria, whether hurricane-related deaths or not. What does your reporting say? For the last 10 days of September only, the official death count in Puerto Rico, general, not Maria-related deaths, is already 500 more than in 2016. So it's a significant spike, 43% increase in deaths in Puerto Rico just for those first 10 days of the emergency. And as you know, most of Puerto Ricans are still without electricity. There's a lot of people still having health problems, elderly people that are suffering and dying from situations that are because of the emergency. So that doesn't count any numbers in October and obviously nothing in November. They can't explain that difference. Why? When the number closer to 1,000 is pretty much conventional wisdom in Puerto Rico, does the Puerto Rican government undercut its own efforts to secure more funding in Washington by undercounting the dead? In the beginning, I believe it was just a way of trying to look good and also a lack of experience of the governor's team that have never dealt with situations like this before. I think that when they started seeing that this was not the reality, it was maybe a little bit too late to try and cover up what they have been doing for a couple of weeks already. Who is in charge of Puerto Rico at this moment? It's the U.S. government that oversees the Financial Oversight and Management Board of Puerto Rico to deal with the island's $70 billion debt. Who are reporters holding accountable for the recovery? I can tell you who we believe should be accountable. We have the Puerto Rican government, who is supposed to be in charge, but who is broke right now. The Fiscal Control Board says they're not in charge, but they really are in charge. It's a creature of the Congress, and Congress is supposed to supervise Puerto Rico in some kind of way. And then you have the federal government and the president, which uh, is also in control in many ways, especially in terms of more than half of Puerto Rico's uh, budget. And funding. It's very difficult. When you go asking uh, somebody a question, they say no. For example, in health issues, no, that, that's the CDC. You ask the Federal Department of Health, and they say no, that's the local government. I mentioned CNN and BuzzFeed, and we've spoken to David Begno of CBS, who has been a steady and, and crucial presence since the storm. What does all the reporting from outside mean for you as a citizen of Puerto Rico and as a journalist. Does it help? Are the mainland press, by and large, getting it right? Some of it, they don't get totally right. And I missed in some occasions, especially the first weeks, the difficult questions. I didn't see them confronting the government. But I think that has been changing. Even David had not spoken a lot about the death count, started talking about that a couple of weeks ago, I believe. Has the press there been up to the challenge? The days after, there was only one uh, radio station standing, and no TV stations. The newspapers were not circulating. One of the newspapers had to move to the emergency center for more than a month. They were producing the whole paper at a Rubbermaid table at the emergency center. So certainly, it's been very difficult for journalists to do their job under these circumstances with no electricity, no internet, um, no uh, power at their homes or their offices. Still, I think they've done a pretty good job in terms of some of the uh, themes, especially the electricity. 
But in others, maybe we could have been tougher, you know, and the death count is one of the areas that we have worked very hard on. But the local media, most of them, I think, were a little scared of that theme. Now that CNN brought it up, and now they're all talking about it. To the fatigued news consumers of the mainland, what would you tell them to help them better understand what is going on there? Most of the population here that are American citizens are still living in a daily state of emergency. They don't have electricity. Many don't have water very precarious health services, and in the end, it's a humanitarian situation that should be of interest and indignation of everybody in the United States. And second, if the problem is not fixed here, in a couple of months, there's going to be a million Puerto Ricans in other states. Omaya, thank you so much. Thank you. Omaya Sosa Pascual is co-founder of the Center for Investigative Reporting in Puerto Rico. Back in the studio at WAPA Radio, Koto was using the news break to reach more official help through Twitter. Because otherwise I wouldn't get any help. Who did uh, you tweet? The, the governor and Carmen Yulin, the mayor of San Juan. I had to do it. And I tweeted, and right away Fortaleza answered. It's incredible. So let's see if they call me. And that works usually? Sometimes. I don't like to do that, but sometimes I have to do it. Fortaleza is the governor's headquarters. Coto had five minutes before she had to step outside to take the call. So she put me on the air to speak with her co-hosts. Nosotros tenemos a la compañera Alana Casanova Burres. Ella trabaja en el programa On the Media, viniendo a Puerto Rico para cubrir... That chair squeaking is the sound of me, caught off guard, getting up from the floor where I had been sitting. Cota slipped out of the studio, and when she returned a few minutes later, she had an update from the mayor's office. Yulene's staff had reached out to help that woman. Other listeners had also called to say they had room for her in their homes. She was crying, saying she was grateful and that she wished she had come earlier, but had been too ashamed. As we'll hear this hour, there is still hope for better things in Puerto Rico because the storm exposed deep-rooted problems long ignored. I don't want to sound corny, and I'm usually not one of those reporters that talks about positive things, but I really have to say that I believe a new and a better Puerto Rico is going to come out of this. Uh, This unveiled a lot of situations that were going on in Puerto Rico and that were maybe not so evident. After this, there's no uh, covering up anymore. Coming up, what the hurricane revealed to those who live on the island and on the mainland. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. And you're listening to a verse written by the group Bamba Pal Pueblo about how Hurricane Maria blew in and out and turned the island backwards, inside out. The Category 4 hurricane hit with such force that trees were stripped of their leaves. The salt water burned the green off the grass as if blasted by a bomb. On the plane, one of the first things we noticed when we were landing was just the acres and acres of trees. They were just brown. There wasn't I tell you, <laughs> it's just gone. It's all gone. It, all the trees is just, a lot of the trees are down. 
But the trees that stay up don't have any leaves at all. We've been driving around Puerto Rico, and it's incredible to see that a paradise island was reduced to this. Everything you see is dead trees, downed power lines, and endless queues to get gas. A paradise island? Not quite. What our producer Alana Casanova-Burgess saw in Puerto Rico was an island that found itself exposed, its secrets suddenly visible, not just to itself, but to the rest of us, too. I met Benjamin Torres-Cotay in a park in San Juan recently. He's a columnist and editor for Puerto Rico's largest newspaper, El Nuevo Día. I had not been here since the hurricane. I find it very different. It had a lot of trees, a lot of palms. The green has mostly come back to Puerto Rico, but the trees that lost branches look surreal, like green Q-tips with tufts of leaves coming out of the top. It's still unsettling. As you can see now, it's almost naked. A few weeks earlier, Gotay had written that Maria had ripped the skin off the island, revealing its skeleton and its flesh. We are left, he wrote, looking at ourselves in a warped mirror, confronted with the hardest realities of our collective life. We've been living a long time under the assumption that uh, we are rich or developed country. But the truth is that we have an enormous portion of our population living on poverty or near poverty. A lot of people living in rundown houses and houses not prepared to resist the force of a hurricane. Before the storm, Puerto Rico's poverty rate was at nearly 45%. For context, Mississippi, the state with the highest poverty rate, is at 21%. I use the image that it peeled the skin of Puerto Rico because I see it almost as a literal thing. You see uh, a lot of communities that were covered by trees and vegetation. After the hurricane, they were revealed as what they really are. One of the landscape's dominant features, aside from swaying palms and sparkling beaches, are shopping malls and big box stores. The island has the highest density of Walmarts and Walgreens in the world. Most towns have a public square, or plaza. But in San Juan, when people say they're going to plaza, they mean Plaza Las Américas, the mega mall that serves as the city's main meeting place. And generally, that assumed that most people had the money to spend. Inequality wasn't front of mind. But that's changed. This week, a U.N. envoy on extreme poverty and human rights toured Puerto Rico on a fact-finding trip. A study from the University of Puerto Rico found that the storm likely pushed the poverty rate up to 52 percent. In the town of Utuado in the mountains, high school students were decorating the square ahead of a Christmas celebration. Walter Ronald González González was there, too. He's the director of art, culture, and tourism for the region, one of the most rural, hardest-hit areas of Puerto Rico. We have seen poverty that was covered up because now there are some people who have said, I haven't had electricity in my home for these many years, or I don't have tap water and I have to use water from the river. This story has long been overlooked by the local news shows because they prefer to focus on the coverage of sensational crimes rather than the steady state of deep poverty. But with so many trees gone, some facts are just too visible to be ignored. For example, in the metropolitan area, there is a young guy who lives under a bridge. He has lived there for years, but now he can be seen. And over that bridge travel thousands of metro area residents. How is it possible that now, because a tree moved, they can see him for the first time? Now, TV programs show critical aid getting to remote homes in the countryside. Homes many didn't realize were always so isolated. Unfortunately, they waited until Maria to do it, but it should have been done before. And that's the reality that Puerto Ricans didn't want to accept or even see. Puerto Ricans have also been confronted with their place in the Caribbean. Puerto Ricans don't often imagine themselves as one of the little islands, even though we are, right? Yarimar Bonilla is an anthropologist at Rutgers University, now working on a book about the crisis. She says that as bad as things got in Puerto Rico during its 10-year recession, the relationship with the U.S. always set the island apart from the rest of the Caribbean. We always have thought of ourselves as better off than our Dominican neighbors and our Cuban neighbors. And so right now, Cuba, they were able to recover from Irma quickly. They got their power back and they're doing good. The Dominican Republic, they're sending us aid and everything we're eating is from over there. Besides, the U.S. sent more American troops and helicopters to Haiti in the days after the 20 
2010 earthquake than we sent to Puerto Rico. So it's really forcing Puerto Ricans to come to terms with that reality. I don't know where that will lead politically. All discussions inevitably lead to the issue of the island's political status. And here we are. But first, an observation. In my first week in Puerto Rico, 50 days after the storm hit, I began to notice a pattern. Even after telling me that washing laundry by hand made their skin raw, or that reading by candlelight was straining their eyes, people would also tell me they had gotten used to a new normal. They had grown accustomed, acostumbrados. No two disasters are alike, but would Floridians or Texans just get used to not having electricity for two months, now going on three? Puerto Ricans have settled into a kind of extended coping limbo. Community groups were activated to help, but restoring the full electric grid could take months. Again, Yarimar Bonilla of Rutgers. So like when I ask people, like, why don't you protest? Or how does this make you feel about the government? Like one guy said, ¿Qué voy a hacer? No me voy a pegar un tiro. <laughs> what, well, what am I going to do? I'm not going to shoot myself in the head. It's a phrase that people use here. I think it speaks to the lack of options that people imagine. So it's either I accept it or I leave or I take my own life. So a lack of perceived options. And yet one of the words you hear a lot in Puerto Rico is resilience. Resilience is a human capacity to deal with tenacity when confronted with traumatic and difficult situations. Alfredo Carasquillo is a psychoanalyst and an expert on leadership at the University of the Sacred Heart in San Juan. But resilience is not resignation. Huh? Resilience implies being stronger to handle things. And when things are not fair and not just, you confront them. So I'm not that sure if what we are seeing in many people in Puerto Rico is resilience or resignation. Resilience has political potential. Resignation has no political potential. I first met Carasquillo in June while reporting a piece for On the Media about the use of the word colony to describe Puerto Rico's relationship to the mainland. For decades, Puerto Ricans used euphemisms like commonwealth or associated free state. But many had begun to use a label they felt was more honest, albeit painful. Carasquillo uses colony, and he says it's essential to understanding why Puerto Ricans don't protest more. It doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is our inability as a people to respond with anger to indignity. That resignation is impressive. I will say that people are afraid, more than resign, are, are afraid. Sandra Rodriguez Cotto, host of that nightly call-in show on WAPA Radio, hears constantly from callers about how hard it is just to get by and how they fear losing what little they have. If you ask people, People don't want to be separated from the United States. We feel American, even though we might think we're Puerto Rican culturally. That's a dichotomy, that's a contradiction that we have. And I think it's because of so many years of being a colony. There's a history of protesters being persecuted on the island, especially those in the independence movement. Entire families were blacklisted by the government. In the 50s, a gag law banned public speech about independence and even outlawed displaying the Puerto Rican flag. Now, says Cotto, Maria has exposed the island's real status as a U.S. colony. No more euphemisms. Americans, some of them anyway, are finally paying attention. I think the American public, for the first time ever, is seeing Puerto Rico for what it is. I mean, we're being on the forefront of the news. So now people are saying, wow, we have some people dying. And we're doing in Puerto Rico what we have been criticizing in other places. They might feel a little bit embarrassed for what they're seeing in Puerto Rico. The columnist Benjamin Torres Cotay thinks that if this were anywhere else, there would be major protests in the streets, people demanding more government help and a faster recovery. But after more than 100 years of U.S. colonial rule, Puerto Ricans are used to waiting and fending for themselves. People here protest by immigrating. So that is a fact of life in Puerto Rico. That is a characteristic of the people of Puerto Rico, basically. Resignation, yeah. People here are not used to stand up to power. I asked him, how do you solve that? Well, uh, I don't have an answer. Uh, colonialism is a two-way problem, and the colonial power is the United States. They have to speak clearly, and they have not done that in over 100 years. In a colonial situation, there's also the matter of who is really in charge, who you can appeal to. Investigative reporter Omaya Sosa-Pascual. Who are they going to protest? 
the governor. The governor here doesn't have a lot of power. You're going to hop on a plane and go protest in Washington? Nobody here has the money to do that. There actually have been a handful of marches this week. Small ones, but there are more every day. One town even hired retired electrical workers to do repairs because they were tired of waiting. On the afternoon I met Gotay, I showed him a news clip of a march in Aguada, a town in the northeast. He said there must have been a really effective community leader there. But it was a good sign. We are not going to have the same country. Puerto Rico was not a great country before Maria. And I don't know how it's going to be, but it's going to be different. That's for sure. He says the storm also revealed how weak Puerto Rico's institutions really are. For 72 hours after the hurricane, it was as though it didn't have a government at all. And the chaos that has followed shows the pitfalls of appointing officials on the basis of connections rather than experience. On Wednesday of this week, Sandra Rodriguez Cotto invited a couple of newly minted activists on her show. They had organized San Juan neighborhoods for a march. Here's one. We feel impotent, she said, because we don't know anything. The government doesn't have a plan, and they're winging it. And it feels like they're telling us a lie all the time. Over 200,000 have already left for Florida since Maria. But Laura, in the mountains of Utuado, finds that very strange. Lo amo más. I love it more, she said. Leaving here? No, on the contrary. We have to deal with this and keep going. It was as though it opened our eyes. We looked around and we saw our neighbors. These were people who never said hello. That's what Maria revealed to us. That's my aunt, Ana Casanova, who lives in the mountains in Ciales. Her roosters, for some reason, crow even at night. And now that the vegetation has grown back around her house, we could barely see her neighbor's lights powered by generators. I said the other day, la naturaleza es más rápida que el hombre. No, nature is faster than man. Yarimar Bonilla of Rutgers. And so nature is already recuperating from the storm, and the leaves are coming back. And so I worry that what was uncovered for a minute, like, is already fading again from view. One of her students in Puerto Rico told her that without cell signal, he had time for long conversations dissecting what was really happening, observations about politics and the future. But then the cell service returned, and he and his girlfriend turned back to their iPads and their cell phones. I want to think that the kinds of conversations that they had during the storm are going to have a long-term impact on the kind of things that were revealed. Older generations have survived hurricanes. None as bad as Maria, but still. Now a whole new generation, those who were already struggling with a decade-long fiscal crisis, have looked in the mirror. I look at the young people like my students, and I, I tell them they are, they're strong like, like my grandmother is strong. I, I want to retain hope that this is going to impact those young people and that they are going to live differently and create something different for us here. People know what's on the other side of the trees now even if they can't see them through the leaves necessarily. Coming up, sharing a disaster creates a special kind of humor. But as they say, you had to be there. This is On The Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess. Just before Thanksgiving, hundreds of residents of Naranjito, a small town 45 minutes southwest of San Juan, were gathering in the square for a free lunch. A priest offered a prayer, asking for God to bless the town and the country and to bless the lunch as a new beginning. The crowd of hundreds bowed their heads. Then the local orchestra started to play. The Star Wars theme. 
And as though that weren't enough, they also played the Game of Thrones song. Solemn prayer and theme songs. But perhaps that's to be expected. You can't live tragedy all the time. The anthropologist Yarimar Bonilla lives in New York, and she told me that she wanted to come see her homeland for herself because a lot of the coverage was so one-note, so full of doom. There should be an, a movie about the hurricane because it has the full range of emotion, you know? So you have fear, but you also have anger because you're closed in tight spaces with your family, you know? And, and, and there's love, and there's probably passion, and, you know, romance, and all of that, you know? So I've been asking people what was the funniest thing that happened during the hurricane, what was their most creative thing that they've come up with. All that humanity, I think, was missing from the reporting that just treats Puerto Ricans as kind of victims or survivors, okay, but still, they're more than that, you know? They're also jokesters, they're also wives and husbands and cousins and daughters and grandchildren. Full disclosure, Yarimar had invited me to a comedy show in San Juan by a group called Teatro Breve. There were sketches and stand-up and some improv, nearly all related to life after Maria. And it was wonderfully funny. So wonderful that I got Brooke on the line with one of the performers. Lucien Hernandez is with the comedy group Teatro Breve. They recently did a run of sold-out performances called After Maria. Lucien, welcome to On the Media. Thank you. So the show starts the night after Maria in the living room of a couple getting ready for the storm. And you play the woman who's freaking out and trying to prepare, and her partner is downloading shows on Netflix. <laughs> it gets a lot of laughs. <laughs> You know, I don't want to make it a gender thing, but apparently a lot of guys were just downloading <laughs> Netflix series while all the women were, you know, trying to get ready. Right. I know that trying to explain a joke is death to comedy, but would you walk us through a specific joke or a line that you just love that just gets a huge laugh and makes you laugh? I think that the biggest laugh that we get, there's a guy and a woman and there's this neighbor who has the generator, he has it all, you know, he knows it all. Tengo planta. Una planta. <laughs> and he visits that day before uh, Maria, he starts telling the guy, hmm, is that car yours? <laughs> I see that tree that is there that it might hit your car. Just put it in my parking space that is better than yours. He's like, no, 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 we don't need help. Thank you. And then he left them a walkie-talkie, but he's like, you know, the signals, they're going to go bad. And the guy is like, are you kidding me? He starts laughing, like, how can the cell phones go bad? You know, you're so crazy, man. And so in the night of the storm, when the tree hits the car, the last thing that you hear is through the walkie-talkie, the neighbor saying, Galdo, the tree fell down, like I told you. <laughs> so. so basically, you perform observations about the storm, like when your partner comes home from shopping for supplies for the storm, and he only has a gallon of water and a six-pack of beer. Now, we know in hindsight how long people have had to rely on bottled water. Are a lot of these jokes about planning badly for something that turns out to be far worse than anyone could have imagined? Yes, I think that Puerto Ricans, we think that we know how to get ready for a storm because we have hurricane season every year. I think that this one, no one was really ready for it. Even the person that went to Costco and bought just a huge amount of things, it wasn't enough. It was actually too soon to laugh for a long time. How long do you need before you can laugh? 
I think that we personally were kind of depressed, each one of us, but people in the streets were like, I know you're writing, you know, I know you're coming up with something very soon. So I think that we as performers use it, I think, as a therapy <laughs> and people also. And that's the relationship that we have with our audience, trying to laugh about the situation. You know, that's part of our culture. That's just how we are. I'm curious, in your show, you also play a recording of the hurricane. We had to put it there because we all felt it. That sound was the same for everyone. My sister doesn't live in Puerto Rico, and I was texting with her when that hurricane sound was going on. And I saved a text that I sent her. I was like, our house is going to be okay. Puerto Rico is going to be a wreck because, mm -hmm. you know, this is just destroying the island. The group performed in Chicago after the hurricane. Since the jokes are so specific to this Puerto Rican experience, how do the jokes land? There were a lot of Puerto Ricans there and suffering a lot from what I saw. You know, having family here that they haven't seen, everyone was like, you know, can you take this to my mother? You know, have you seen this person or whatever? So I think that they cried more than they laughed because... You know, they weren't here, and even though sometimes we resent that they weren't here. And it's <laughs> like, you know, you're not suffering the way we are suffering, man. We can make jokes about it because it's like with family. In your family, you can joke about things, but someone from outside comes and you're not going to get away with laughing about our things. Just us can make fun <laughs> of ourselves. Every Puerto Rican has, you know, has prepared for a hurricane. All the, the warnings that we get and all the hurricane watch, we get them every year. So I'm sure that a lot of people from there were through George's or Hugo, you know, two big hurricanes. They were here before. We joke about, you know, they think they know, but they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How long can you live without electricity with the, some schools being closed? How long can that go on before you can't joke about it anymore on stage? People who write are writing. People who paint are painting. People who do comedy, we're going to be ironic about it. And we are going to put it out there. This is just our way to cope with the situation. But it has never been funny. Lucien, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Lucien Hernandez is with Teatro Breve, a comedy group based in San Juan. You can find their videos on their Facebook page. In June, before Maria, before Irma, before everything changed, I spoke with the Puerto Rican radio and TV host Jay Fonseca about the challenges the island faced even then, and the mistaken impression among some mainland politicians that islanders just want federal handouts. I think that we're not that different, that we are struggling the same way the Rust Belt or the Bible Belt is struggling right now, or parts of Pennsylvania, parts of Ohio. We have the same problems with drug addiction, for example. And the Puerto Ricans, we're not lazy people. We, we want to work. We want jobs. We want to uh, provide for our families. I still agree with Jay. Puerto Rico has been shaped in the image of the United States in so many ways. The big box stores, the corporate tax cuts, the political log jams, the scapegoating of the poor. The island has long been a laboratory for the U.S., sometimes literally. Puerto Rican women who were research subjects in developing the birth control pill, for example, didn't even know they were guinea pigs. And in the Cold War, while the Soviet Union used Cuba as a poster island, the U.S. used Puerto Rico as a showcase for capitalism. But what it now displays is skyrocketing debt, soaring unemployment, and a vast gulf between the few rich and the many, many poor. Sandra Rodriguez Cotto. So having this island that was supposed to have so much money turn into this chaos and economic chaos for a decade and being basically bankrupt was a story. And Puerto Rico was being showcased all over the world as the new Greece And now, in a season of so many strong hurricanes, it was Puerto Rico that took the most devastating blow. 
But it could have been anywhere. And chances are, sooner or later, it will be. Let's remember the context, which is climate change, a global warming. Psychoanalyst Alfredo Carasquillo wasn't the only one who made this point to me. And when I arrived in Puerto Rico seven weeks after Maria, I met people who still hadn't taken their storm windows down because they feared another hit. Now this hurricane season is over, but the clock is already ticking for Puerto Rico and everywhere else. It's not going to be 20 years before we get the next one. So are we rebuilding our infrastructure so that that infrastructure is destroyed again in a year or in two years? It's absurd. Huh? So what should we be doing differently at this point? And that is the type of conversation that we are desperately needing. In the Cold War, the U.S. held up Puerto Rico as the emblem of the American way. Now, crippled by climate change, struggling with addiction, and torn by yawning inequality, it seems a different kind of reflection. But Puerto Rico is dynamic. It could still function as a kind of lab for fixing things, getting things right, for the mainland too. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Loewinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan, Monique Laborde, and Sarah Chadwick-Gibson. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Thank you also to Rob Christensen, Maria Cristina Rodriguez, Lowell Fiat, Lucinda Williams, Anna Casanova, Olga Casanova-Burgess, and Pablo Repoyas. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Support for WNYC's coverage of Puerto Rico has been provided in part by the Jacob and Valeria Langloff Foundation. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.